You know, we fill our lives with uh, many things as we go through the course of a week. And, uh, but worship is meant to be different. It's a time for us to be reminded of what's ultimately important in life. And I want to invite you to hear some words from Mark's Gospel. And these are powerful words. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate, and he realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandments are greater than these. Let's pray together, shall we? God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we praise you this day. And this is only possible through your presence in us and by your grace. Otherwise, we're easily distracted. We're diverted away from where you want us to be. We're distanced from your calling. We're lost in our current situations. So forgive us for our lack of attention to your word, for our failure to act and find what we need from the source of our joy. Help us to repent, to turn in the right direction uh, this day that we may fulfill your commandment to love you with all that we are and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. And may we indeed worship you today with all of our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're midway through this series, and we've been talking about a vision. We've been talking about leadership from the first chapter of Joshua in the Old Testament. Today we're going to be moving into chapter 2, and we're going to look at a story of faith that involves a woman by the name of Rahab as Joshua and God's people get ready to enter the promised land and go up against a highly fortified city called Jericho. Now this is a story that has both fact and faith and reminds us that God doesn't ever ask us to follow him blindly. But instead, he shows us the reality of what's ahead and then asks us to trust him as he leads us to victory. But I'm also going to be sharing with you near the end of this teaching today more of where I think God is leading us as a congregation in the coming months. So I invite you to stay awake for that part. And uh, we'll get to all of that in just a few moments. Let's pray together, though. God, wherever we ha whenever we have questions or whenever we have concerns, you invite us to immerse ourselves in an awareness of you. You are the powerful spirit who watches over us and those we care about. And you are the one who calls us to turn away from human reasoning and, and, and uh, fears and ask you, asks us to, show, uh, to help you show us the way that leads to the fullness of life and your good purposes for us in life. So God, we ask for your help today, and we pray to be guided and directed by you to know exactly what to do in our individual lives and in the life of this church. We ask for your direction. Speak to us and help us to listen to your still small voice and experience an inner knowing of what we are to do at all times. God, we have faith that answers will be revealed as we place our trust and our faith in you. And we know that uh, as, the, the secure, as we know the security of being guided by your hand. So thank you, God, for going before us and showing us the way and making the crooked places in our life straight. Today we worship you 
and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a young boy growing up in the church, we had a pastor who would preface just about everything he said with, um, if the Lord wills, if, if it's God's will, I'll do this or that. And I didn't always understand that as a, as a kid, but now I understand that a little better reading uh, the New Testament book of James. James says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow, we are going to do a certain, uh, going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. And then this sobering statement, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or do that. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to talk with people who have shared with me their dream of starting a new business, and they talk about the freedom of being their own boss or the money that they'll make and the influence they can have on other people. But those who have been there and done that know that there are some harsh realities that commonly accompany a new business. Instead of being their own boss, now they have many bosses, and they're called customers. And the road to profitability can often take years instead of months. People who have been through it themselves can help to provide a reality check for others who are uh, exploring that opportunity. And likewise, a leader in any organization today must make a realistic assessment of the obstacles and the opportunities involved in any new step of faith, in any new venture. Sometimes this can be done by the leader alone, but most times it's beneficial to get the input of others. This is called reality check, and it allows for the creation of a relevant action plan to carry out your vision. In the second chapter of the Old Testament book of Joshua, it talks about a spy mission that was organized by Joshua as the Israelites were preparing to enter the promised land. And he forms this task force of just two people and gives a clear mandate to them of what he would like for them to accomplish. From this story of Joshua and his spies, churches, I think, can learn some valuable lessons about the bases that need to be covered as we scout out new territory to be taken for God. Now, I know it's almost time for spring training and baseball to start, so I, the four points today are the four bases on a diamond. First base is check out what you've learned from past experience. This is not the first time that spies were sent out into the promised land. The last spy mission, if you've read your Old Testament, has it was initiated by Moses, and Joshua happened to be one of those spies. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, it talks about reflecting, Joshua reflecting on the major changes that had been made since, uh, as a result of his past experience. So first, Joshua sends out spies secretly. That's the first change from, previous, uh, from the previous time. When Moses had sent out the spies year be years before, they were selected publicly, and they were allowed to come back and give a public report. This resulted in a disaster that cost the movement of God to be set back about 40 years, maybe because they reported to people who didn't have the faith didn't have the vision, 
to process the realities without being unduly frightened by them. And they also, uh, in that public setting, the this, this, this spies uh, veered from their original mandate. Their commission was to go out and provide information about the promised land, not come back and give their opinion about whether or not it could be taken. And their official public report degenerated into a subversive negative report. These were, there was 10 of the spies who were rebellious, capitalizing on their visibility and their experience, and they came back and gave the people a bad report. So Joshua chooses to send out spies secretly. They're not commissioned publicly, nor are they given the opportunity to report publicly. They form a team that is to provide him with information about the obstacles and the opportunities in the promised land. And he wants to see how much things have changed in the 40 years since he scouted out that same territory. Secondly, Joshua sends out two spies, not 12, but two. uh, Moses had sent out 12 to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Their participation in the spy mission was based on their position in the tribal structure of the nation. And it seemed like a good idea at the time to have this delegation that represented the people of God. Later, however, it became evident that only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, had the faith required to participate in such a mission. Joshua sends out two spies. He's making the transition from leadership based on position, a representative from each tribe, to leadership based on conviction. He wanted people who had the faith to believe in God's promises. A glimpse of their faith is found in their later conversation with Rahab, a woman that they would meet in Jericho, where they promise to treat her kindly if she upholds her end of the bargain when the Lord gives them the land. Now, it wasn't if the Lord gives them the land, but when. Then third, Joshua focuses their efforts on Jericho. When Moses sent out the 12 spies, he gave them a very broad assignment to go explore the land. The assignment may have been too broad, resulting in a mission that took about 40 days to accomplish. They were gone so long they began to see the barriers, not the blessings. They began to weigh only the cost of doing something, of moving forward with God's plan, and they lost sight of the cost of doing nothing, standing still in disobedience to God's plan. So Joshua commissions this task force to look over the land, especially the walled city of Jericho. And the focus on Jericho allows them to complete their work in just a few days and return to the people. And Joshua learns from his past experience not to ignore reality by skipping the mission altogether. But like Jesus, he realized the wisdom of counting the cost. See, the way he structured the mission reflects the wisdom of experience. And spiritual leaders, when taking a new step of faith, need to ask, how have we tried anything similar in the past? And what did we learn from it? And that willingness to learn from previous experiences develops wisdom and often prevents catastrophes. Now here's second base. Check out what others have to say. These spies embarked on a mission and ended up at the house of Rahab, a woman of questionable reputation. They didn't check into the local Motel 6 where their presence would have been obvious. Instead, God led them to a safe place where they wouldn't stand out in this thriving pagan city. 
Before the spies go to sleep for the night, Rahab goes up on the roof where she's hiding these spies and has a talk with them. And from their conversation with Rahab, they learn some important stuff that greatly encourages their heart. She tells them that she knows that God has given them this land and that those who are living there now are melting in fear because of the impending invasion of God's people. The people of the land have heard about what God has done to others who have tried to stand in, in the way of his plan, the Egyptians, the Amorites, and they're well aware that the God of Israel has a track record of victory. And the people, they will go up against, Rahab says, their hearts have melted in fear and no one has the courage to fight. For they recognize that the Lord God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. And the power of the God of Israel is one that knows no boundaries. Sometimes the confirmation of a movement of God comes from the most unexpected sources. This pagan woman and her people are probably more convinced of the power of God than the average Israelite at this point in time. See, a reality check involves listening to the viewpoints of others and actively seeking their input. But there are different levels of listening. You know, at the most superficial level, listening is, is focused on words that are being said. On a deeper level of listening, it moves beyond what is communicated verbally and it is an attempt to grasp what a person is feeling, what's behind the words, the why question. Why is it being said? But for a spiritual leader, there's even a deeper level of listening. Beyond the words and the feelings, there is a looking for evidence that God is preparing the way for what God wants to do. So when Moses sends out these spies into the promised land uh, 40 uh, years earlier, uh, did they listen to the people in the land? No. Did they concentrate on the barriers that, they, uh, that were there? Yes. They missed the spiritual and invisible preparation that God uh, had already been uh, working to accomplish. So how do we as leaders in the church follow Joshua's example? To whom should we listen when conducting a reality check, when preparing for any major new initiative? I think it's important to gather in, in, uh, input from the following five groups of people. First, we need to listen to people whose needs will potentially be met if we take this action. This helps to determine exactly what needs to be done. This can be dangerous. It can be dangerous to assume that we know what people need or simply duplicate what's being done elsewhere. Secondly, we need to listen to people who have the resources to meet those needs. These resources may be financial. They may be spiritual. They, but we need to... Uh, uh, we need to uh, listen to people who can help us address the need in this particular area of ministry. Just because a need exists doesn't mean that God is calling a church to meet that need. It's wise to evaluate available resources and people and space and finances. And then third, we need to listen to people outside the walls of the church. I regularly try to ask people what they perceive as needs in the community. And I like to talk to people who are not involved in the church about what they see a church doing in their area to meet their needs. Sometimes I talk to other church leaders to, in the community to see what they've tried or what they're currently doing. And it's a way to stay informed. Fourth, we need to listen even to the skeptics. These are people who believe that something can't be done. 
shouldn't be done. And they point out all the pitfalls associated with taking new territory and new ministry. You don't have to agree with them. You don't even have to try to convince them that they're wrong. You just simply have to learn what makes people uncomfortable and know that those are places that you're going to encounter resistance to change. And then lastly, people, we need to listen to people who have already done what we're considering doing. We need to learn from others' experience as well as from our own. And I've discovered that gleaning insights from the experience of others can lead to having much better experiences ourselves. Choosing a cross-section of people who can look at a new idea from a different perspective can provide a picture of whether or not God is preparing that way uh, for us in that endeavor. The need for churches to be sensitive today to those who are unchurched and seeking faith has been widely talked about in church circles for years. But Joshua's spies um, long ago demonstrated seeker sensitivity by listening to the perspectives of an unchurched person they meet in Jericho by the name of Rahab. They listened to her fears. They listened to her hopes. They listened to her view of God and, and what, might, uh, what they might do to meet her needs. Undoubtedly, they've learned to shape that all of that information helped to shape their final report back to Joshua. Well, here's third base. Check to be certain that all the bases have been covered. A reality check that only investigates one aspect of the anticipated initiative is not really a reality check at all. This task force of two spies needed to understand everything that was ahead of them. They needed to cover all the realities. Their vision of the promised land was three-dimensional. It was a vision of condemnation. If you read in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, here the spies are given a glimpse of a world that is condemned by God. See, they witness the fear and the despair of people who were facing judgment. With Rahab's help, they look beyond the defenses and the defiance to see the lordship of God over both heaven and earth, even in this pagan land. And this is the beginning point of their vision and should be the beginning point of any vision that the church develops. This vision of condemnation is very different than a common vision in our society today because we live in a society that believes that people are basically good. And while there is goodness in a lot of people, um, uh, we know that to be true, but there is also uh, evil. And this, uh, the Bible is very clear on this teaching that we are all born into sin. And some of us are capable of incredible evil. We are people, all of us, who need God's grace, who need God's redemption. However, there is an increasingly popular mindset in our culture that salvation is universal. And everyone's going to make it to heaven because we're all basically good. This belief is not, is not, may not be publicly stated, but many Christians fail to see the need to share their faith in their circles of influence, comforting themselves with the thought that all of us are basically good people and God's not going to turn any of us away. But the Bible teaches something very clearly different than that. That people who do not submit their lives to God are not going to end up in heaven. And God will condemn us if we don't take advantage of the opportunity to respond to him in repentance and faith. I would challenge you to try something. To just go through this community, drive by our schools, drive by our schools, 
and picture for a moment the eternal destiny of young people who are not in church, who have never had the opportunity to surrender their life to Jesus Christ. Drive through some of the more expensive subdivisions and remind yourself that money can't buy salvation. Tour some of the neighborhoods where poverty is present and remember that the greatest poverty is not financial. It is spiritual. And then begin to pray. Every decision that we make as a congregation has to involve the reality of lost people. We must be extending an invitation to all people to know Jesus Christ. And at times the book of Joshua is criticized because of the killing of the people who, uh, who live in, in this land that God has promised. What chances, however, would these people have had for eternal life if the Israelites had never come and invaded the land? Rahab makes it clear that these are folks who already knew about God and could have chosen to submit to him. Every victory in the promised land is an opportunity for more people to repent, an opportunity for condemned people like Rahab to become consecrated people who were devoted to God and to God's purposes in the world, but many of them chose not to respond to God in faith. There also needs to be a vision of salvation, verses 12 through 14. You know, lost people matter to God. I wonder if the spies were only sent to check out the, prop the, uh, the, 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 the promised land in preparation for invasion. No, it seems to be their purpose uh, was to, to do that, but I'm also convinced that God spotted Rahab's faith a long way off. And this mission demonstrates the lengths to which God will go for the salvation of one soul and one family. God goes a long way for a little faith. And Christian people like us must be reminded how much lost people matter to God and how they need to matter to us. From the familiar words of John 3:16 to Jesus' teaching in Luke 15 about the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the Bible emphasizes that God is in the business of seeking and finding lost people. The scarlet cord that Rahab hangs from her window has long been a symbol throughout church history of the blood of Christ, shed for lost people. The reality of God's heart for the lost compels us to act courageously to, uh, to reach them. But there also then must be a, a vision for action. The spies commit themselves to to the rescue of Rahab and her relatives. Their vision results in an action plan. Rahab acts on her faith by covering for these spies and hanging out a scarlet cord and gathering her relatives into her house and her example of faith combined with her works leads the New Testament writer James to include her as an example of faith in action. Now, while it's important for us to sense the brokenness of people in our world and the heart that God has for all people, the lack of a realistic action plan never allows those feelings to mature beyond sentimentalism. The focus must always move beyond how we feel about it to what we're going to do about it. And a sense of conviction has to culminate in a plan of action. This three-dimensional vision is indispensable to a new ministry initiative because without a vision for the lost we won't see the eternal difference that our actions can make 
And without a vision of salvation, we're going to judge the lost without reaching them. And without a vision for action, our faith is always going to be impotent. So like this three-legged stool, all the legs must be present to support uh, the taking of new territory. Now here's the final point. It's home plate. Check out all the conditions before making commitments. Rahab asked these spies for a commitment to show kindness to her and her family and to preserve their life. The spies indicated their willingness to meet that request, but she had to meet certain conditions. Rahab could not tell anyone that what these spies were doing. She had to keep their mission a secret to prevent the residents of the land from making arrangements for an attack by the Israelites. Rahab had to hang a scarlet cord from her window out the side of, the, of Jericho's uh, encased wall, enclosed wall. Uh, the spies might not remember the exact location of their house when they returned, and they couldn't be responsible from going, for going from to house to house to find her when a battle was going on. But then Rahab had to gather all her family in this house, family that she wanted to see saved from destruction by the Israelites. Not only would this be a demonstration of some level of her faith and the family's faith, but it would help the, uh, uh, the Israelites to locate her relatives during the course of the battle. See, while the spies were very grateful for what Rahab had done and greatly encouraged by her report of what God was already doing, their enthusiasm didn't result in unrealistic commitments. Their conditions answered questions that wise spiritual leaders also ask. Like, what happens if a person does not do what he or she has promised? If Rahab did not uphold her end of the bargain, the deal was off. And church leaders have to ask similar questions. What happens if people don't follow through on their commitments? What happens if volunteers back out? What happens if space is no longer available? These are questions we must ask. Secondly, are my commitments realistic under the conditions? The spies knew their promises would have to be kept in, in the midst of the battle, and spiritual leaders likewise have to assess conditions of a new ministry. Do we have the finances? Do we have the time, the willing volunteers to make things happen? We don't want to start something that we can't finish. And then third, do my commitments obligate other people? Am I authorized to speak for them? These spies were obligating, you see, Joshua to their promise and obviously had the right to speak for him. So when a leader makes a commitment he or she must be a certain to have the authority to speak for those in authority. Now these spies returned to Joshua and gave their report. And their conclusions are an appropriate blend of fact and faith. Fact, they told Joshua everything that had happened to them. And faith, they, told, they said to Joshua, the Lord has given us the whole land. For all the people in the land are terrified. Of us you see when pursuing God's purposes both facts and faith are absolutely necessary what a challenge it is to determine an appropriate blend of both as we try to understand and move into the vision that God has called us to before I close this message this morning I want to share with you how I think this blend of fact and faith has challenged me recently as a congregation, um, we've been carrying some indebtedness since we first built this part of our building in 1993. 
At that time, we were preparing for the future that God was giving us in this community. And over the years, we began to pay down some of that debt. But in 2004, we added to it with an addition for our children's ministry area. And then in the original part of the building that was on this site, we kind of remodeled that for our youth space. So that's our student ministry wing, our, our gym. We paid more of that debt down, but we began to add to it again for some roofing needs and other capital fund projects. A few years ago, I began to sense, or a few months ago, I began to sense God nudging me about the $1.2 million worth of debt that we still have on this facility. And for years, I didn't think that we were ready as a congregation to tackle that debt. We were growing our ministry in other areas, and God was providing just about what we needed to make ends meet at the end of each year. But since this past fall, I am clearly sensing God saying, now's the time. And I'm guessing that I really don't have to convince most of you that debt holds us back from doing some other things that God has in mind for us to do. A lot of you have been through Financial Peace University. You've been encouraged by Dave Ramsey to get free of your own personal indebtedness. I believe it's time we tackled the debt monster here at church. Our staff and our finance folks have begun to think about how to do that. And at my urging, we're thinking about a miracle Sunday sometime in mid to late October when we will challenge ourselves to obey God and to deal with this debt. And it's intended to be separate from all of our regular giving that supports the day-to-day -day ministry of this congregation. You're going to be hearing more about this idea in a month or so, so watch for a letter that will come to your home. But I'm convinced that if all of us will begin now to pray about this and do something, whether it's just saving a little bit each week for the next eight months, we can make this indebtedness go away. This is where we put facts and faith together and put it to work. Do we believe that God is truly able to do something in this congregation that is beyond our wildest imagination? I believe it is possible. The point is that instead of paying ten or $11,000 a month on debt, we can think about expanding our ministry and reach as a congregation both here in this community and around the world. By lowering or eliminating this debt, we will be poised to be able to build again in a year or two, which I think we need to do. We are already out of classroom space again, and we have needs every single week that a, that a building addition would help to satisfy and, and meet. Um, you're going to be hearing more about this idea in the near future, but for now, I just wanted you to hear from my heart today where I believe God is leading us in a very tangible way that will impact our ministry together in a huge way. You know, when we make decisions for our church, we seek to make wise decisions, but wisdom cannot be developed and we, unless we relate God's perspective to the realities of life. There's no such thing as blind faith. In fact, what makes the Christian faith so unique is its ability to face the realities and have hope that transcends those realities. So we can realistically face any new challenge, any new initiative, that God has in our future with all of its opportunities and its obstacles and not be limited by what we think we can do. It's not about what we think we can do. It's about developing the wisdom and the faith to see God at work and know what God can do through us. To see that some decisions will stretch our faith, some will move us beyond our comfort zones, 
It's not ignoring reality, it's just letting God lead us as we make our way into the the purpose and the plan and the vision God has called us to. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to learn from our experiences and yet not be limited by them. Let us be objective enough to bring to the surface any self-deception that may cost us the vision that you have for us. Guide us in discerning our weaknesses and grant us the security to surround ourselves with people and strengths that will lead us forward. Let our hearts be broken and filled with compassion for those who are lost and without hope. And teach us how to reach this community with the good news of Jesus Christ. For surely the promise that you made to Joshua is a promise also to us that you want to give us the whole land into our hands. So help us to be faithful to that calling today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.